Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. You know what I'm about to say. Can you please click the link that says patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. It is at the top of the podcast you're about to listen to. And it's the only way we keep this show on the road. We keep the mics on, lights on and bills paid. You're paying it forward so everybody gets the podcast for free. So just think of it as the easiest bit of activism you can do. You get a ton of additional content and all of our podcasts as quickly as I can turn them around in one consolidated feed, completely plea-free. So not only is it a bit of activism, it's also a little gift you can give to yourself. Obviously, we've been doing a lot of coverage on Israel-Palestine, but we've a ton of other podcasts on the way, including a great conversation with Sinn Féin's Owen O'Brien. And our Martin McMahon had a great conversation with University of Limerick's Professor of Economics, Stephen Kinsler, on the Karshan case and what it means for the gig economy. All of those will be in the Patreon feed as quickly as I can get the bloody edits done. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. But one more time, please click the link, patreon.com forward slash tortoise I'm shutting up now. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber Podcast. My name is Tony Groves and folks, we have been covering obviously wall-to-wall events in Israel, Palestine and um, particularly with voices within Gaza. But we've also been able to keep an eye domestically on what's been happening. And obviously over the last few years, since the inception of this podcast, we've talked about harm reduction, the need for decriminalisation and what is happening in terms of drug policy in Ireland. Um, and I've got to pay a huge compliment now. One of the earliest guests uh, that we had on to talk about it was Dr. Austin O'Carroll. And I think the phrase he used, Martin, was that when he goes to, when he goes to bed, he wears Sharon Lambert uh, pajamas. Wasn't it something like that he, he said? Um, yeah, because it was. And you better be careful because you have Sharon McCranky up there and it could happen. <laughs> um, we are thrilled to be rejoined on the podcast by our friend in UCC, senior lecturer in UCC, Sharon Lambert. Sharon, it's great to see you. How are you keeping? Hi guys, how are you? It's lovely to see you. No, um, no, we really appreciate you giving us the time at short notice. Um, look, can we just, if you could, we've now got these outputs, I'm going to call them, from the Citizens' Assembly on drugs. Uh, can I get your sense, first of all, before we maybe ask a few questions of what your feeling is when when you've read through it, as someone who both participated in in the, in the Citizens' Assembly and then monitored, monitored it quite closely? Yeah, so I suppose my input was on on the inaugural weekend. Uh, so I spoke about the relationship between trauma and an addiction, and how, you know, when we think about drug related harm, how a criminal conviction is also a harm. So so thinking about it in, in lots of different ways, uh, I have tried my best to tune in when I can and watch it live. Where I haven't, I've tried to watch a lot of it back. I haven't seen every single session. I have missed sessions, so I just want to put that out there. Um, I wasn't able to watch it live this week, uh, this last weekend, where where the citizens were reaching their deliberations. But I was trying to to keep up what was going on. So I suppose, like honestly, at the weekend I was I was confused because the first thing that I saw go up was, you know, this very large percentage of people had said, you know, the status quo isn't working. And then the very last thing I saw at the end of the day was um, drug use will remain within the criminal justice system. And I thought, I don't really understand how it has moved from not wanting to be in the status quo to to finally being in the status quo. And I I think I tweeted about that, not that it was, wasn't tweeting a criticism, I I hadn't arrived at a a determination in my head. I was kind of confused about how did we go from here to there. 
And then I watched, obviously, some other input where people were saying there was some confusion around voting. There were people not happy with the way questions were, were phrased, etc. So I waited for the recommendations to come out and I read them. I did speak to people who were present uh, last weekend. Um, and I suppose when I go through the recommendations, there is everything is there that I would want to be there. Uh, do I think it goes far enough? Perhaps not. But at the start of the process, I remember thinking to myself, for people who, there were different people who, who have different perspectives on this issue. So if you take somebody like me, I worked a, a lot as before I, I went into academia in, in addiction services. So my focus would be a lot on the 10% of you of people who use drugs who end up in difficulty. That's that's where, where my research is and that's where I worked. 90% of people who don't use drugs or 90% of people who use drugs end up with no difficulty. So a lot of people would argue that the assembly was heavily weighted on that 10%. And I suppose I understand why they're saying that, but actually that 10% are the most affected. That's the reality. And it's not just them who's affected. It's their families and their communities. So I remember thinking at the start, this is a really big issue. And it's there's going to be people who are going to be disappointed at the end. And I remember thinking, I hope I won't be one of the ones. What I had kind of predicted in my head at the start was based on following over the last number of years, public opinion. So I thought the Citizens Assembly is supposed to represent public opinion, but they've had the advantage of being exposed to various different experts. But they still should come out roughly in around public opinion. That's that's how it works. They are members of the public. So what I had predicted, if it was going by what I, I, I know in terms of trends within the public, was I had predicted that it would be decriminalization, not legalization, but that legalization would be close. Um, what I think about the legalization issue is obviously the people who, who use drugs recreationally, and people don't like to talk about that, but there are people who use dr drugs recreationally. Um, people don't like when I use the word recreation, um, but that's what they experience it as. So that's what it is. So I always felt that they were probably going to be disappointed at the end of this process. And they are, because that vote was very close. Now, if I was a political party, what I would do is I would put the legalization question to the general public now and I would put it out as a referendum because I think what would happen is the people who are invested in that will go out and vote. And I think that there are people who are kind of middle of the road, don't care enough to go out and vote. I think it would narrowly win if there was a referendum. There's been some controversy around whether this is decriminalization or not. So I have spoken to people who were there and their understanding of this is that, that people will not be prosecuted for possession. They will be diverted to a SARE brief screening. So some people will say, well, that means you're pushing them into addiction services when they don't need to be there. SARE brief screening is not really an addiction service. So addiction services operate in tiers. It's tier one, tier two, tier three, tier four. So a SARE brief 
screening is something that happens in a tier one service. So you go up, you fill out a form and that form, and I filled out these forms myself when I worked in addiction services. Sometimes people were referred to the service and they didn't have a problem. So you do an assessment and you say, this isn't at a level that we would consider to be problem use. You are not appropriate for addiction services. Mind yourself though, because these are the risks that go with this. I don't see anything wrong with that myself. Um, particularly when it comes to young to, to younger people who might also be struggling with their mental health, but they're not at a level where they have problem drug use. So if that's what happens, that's kind of what I predicted would have happened. Um, I think sometimes when people are reading some of the recommendations as well, that they're interpreting a, a very heavy justice focus. So, for example, recommendation for the Department of Justice and the Irish Prison Service to develop and fund enhanced prison-based addiction services. So, so this is about talking about the people that already exist. There are people who already exist in the air in the criminal justice system and you have to look after them. Um, people saying it's more the same. I don't think it is because there is no recommendation there that says let's increase funding in policing of drugs. There's no recommendation there that says that. It's all about how do you reduce harm, which is what I would have wanted, is how do you reduce harm? Um, so that's kind of, I hope that wasn't too long of an answer. No, but I think that, that was, That's my that was, overall. Martin, you go ahead. But I just think, Sharon, thank you for that, because I think anybody who's listening will get the sense of, get the full facts of what, you, what your expertise about it. And also... There is an undercurrent of of like your your tone is telling us that you know maybe it hasn't gone as far as you wanted, but there's a little bit there's 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 something in it. Go ahead, Martin. Sorry. The acid test, Sharon. Will it save lives? Will it save more lives if it goes further? Mm, I don't know. Uh, what it will certainly do is 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 we know that criminalizing people increases. Uh, stigma it reduces their opportunities for recovery so in that way it will save lives because if you have people who do have problem use for example and they are diverted away from the criminal justice system recovery is easier there's no question about that because often a uh, part of recovery can sometimes be relapse you know so um you know if somebody does want to go into return to education or, or go to employment and if they're doing that without having this long criminal record for drug use, that massively improves their opportunity for recovery. I think in terms of saving lives, one of the things that the Citizens' Assembly has also done is just by having it, it has allowed us as a nation to have a very grown-up conversation about drug use. And from my presence there, uh, there were people who spoke where I felt sometimes it doesn't really sound like they have empathy for people who use drugs. But actually, probably 95% of the people I heard speaking at the Citizens' Assembly spoke in a compassionate and empathetic way. And I think that that has exposed, that conversation has, has exposed members to, of the public to a much more nuanced and real conversation around drugs. Because the Citizens' Assembly talked about drugs beyond the criminal justice system. And mostly when we hear about drugs, it is within the context but, of the criminal justice but, but, system. But Sharon, is it not unfair to say that the, uh, that the representations to the Citizens' Assembly where um, policing was probably overrepresented? 
they had more opportunities to present than than maybe say for example as we refer to the ninety percent of people who will use the phrase not all use is abuse type uh, of of individuals they didn't get as a voice as, as certainly in my opinion as as so much as the policing um, area. I, I I do accept what you're saying. Um, I think that. Maybe they appeared three times. That yeah, be? Three, is, yeah. Three, three is my understanding. And again, I didn't yeah. follow it completely, but three was my understanding, yes. So I suppose for me on the outside, if I look, there would have been sessions I would have, every single person who's invested in this, you can get quite emotional actually, because it's not just about drugs, it's about people, right? So, and anyone who's who's invested in this area can get very emotional about it. So I would look and I would say, I wouldn't have that person. I would have this person instead. Or why haven't we had this input? I think absolutely every single person who who is invested in this area will look and they would do something differently. I would I would have had, I, I don't think that they needed to be there three times. Um, I I know that you've had um, Ian. Did, did you speak to Ian? With Ian Marder and Keen. Um, yeah. Okonga, who, who I just butchered his name yet again. But um, we had the two lads on, uh, along with Nessa Hurrigan, to talk about this. And, you know, obviously, there's nothing in this as well. Like when we talk about, you said about people already in the system, already, you know, who have been criminalized by this. I, I mean, uh, like we see it in in in, mem- in in states in America now where they they have to quash um you know former uh, convictions for these things i mean these this stuff now should not be oh look i i accept that that this is a good place to be starting from but i just this is my, my i suppose my disappointment is in see what you said was it'll lift the stigma that's all, that's great but we need. I want to go a lot further than that, as I'm sure you do as well, as someone who who works with people in trauma and uh, and many people who who care about this uh, deeply understand that uh, the stigmatization is absolutely crucial that we remove it. But it's also just it's just one of the steps. It is, and 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 going back to you know the policing input, I suppose uh, Kian and and Ian would probably say you know, you have to also have a critical analysis of policing because there is over, you know, some communities there, there's no question there are communities and, and individuals and ethnicities who are over-policed. Um, I suppose, could it have gone on for another year? You know, that that's, that's the thing. So uh, I don't know if I was there what decisions I would have made and who I would have well I do know who I would have included and who I wouldn't have included but then that's my my perception so so when I think about who was there and who was invited and how that happened is you have two different groups two different panels that are deciding so you have a, a group of people who are advisors to the citizens assembly making up a mix of academic practice uh, policy etc then there was also a service user group who were inputting as well. Uh, and then the citizens themselves also had the opportunity to say, actually, we need more on this or less on that. So, so one of the things I think, the biggest thing I took from being present there was that on the outside, when you're watching, uh, and on, me on the outside watching, I can I can very easily be critical of the process 
um, because I might say, well, the citizens need to know this. But then I'm assuming that they don't know that. And actually, my experience of being there was that it was a, a, a genuine mix. You had people who were extremely well informed. You had people who 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 said, I kind of understand a little bit, but I don't. You had people who were were very um, li- had had very liberal approaches. You had people who had very conservative approaches. You had people in the middle going, "Yeah, I'm kind of open." So my biggest sense was when I walked away from that first session was that I trusted the citizens actually, and that's where I'm still at. I trusted the citizens um, that they would make. Uh, good decisions and if they were concerned that they would address that and they did you saw that some they, they addressed issues around voting the other thing you have to remember when you were watching live and, and I don't know whether you've watched any sessions live is, is that it breaks and then there's a lot of conversation that happens in the room um, that you don't get to see so what you were watching on the videos that you see is not the full story of all of the conversations that happened last weekend Sharon, is there a huge difference in the decisions in how cannabis is treated compared to everything else? And did cannabis, the use of cannabis, have uh, too much of an influence on the process? I suppose that that reflects where society is at because people view cannabis as less harmful than other drugs. Um. So people are more tolerant of it. it people do imagine it as, as a category on its own. Um, you could have a citizens' assembly just on cannabis because the research is really, really complicated on cannabis. So, for example, people say things like, uh, you know, uh, I don't know if you watched um, the late debate last night. So somebody said something about the relationship between cannabis and mental health. And and the truth of that is we don't know, right? Because most of the stories are most of the studies are are actually uh, correlational, not causation. And when you look at mental health in general, what we know is is that mental health is something that starts quite young, and then that substances come in a bit later. So that chicken and egg thing. Most people are moving away from that and saying actually the mental health is first. And actually for the people who spoke the people with lived experience in the audience who spoke last night, Gillian, and uh, uh, I think he was a football player. My na- His name has got, gone out of my head. Not Philly yeah. McMahon, was it? No, it was Luke, I think was his name. Oh, the, yes, yes. Sorry, sorry, yes. But the two people who spoke last night who had lived experience, they both, when they talked about the kind of history of their drug use and their journey, what was really interesting was both of them talked about their, so, you know, Gillian had experienced trauma uh, and that was, you know, her addiction was a response to that. And then the other contributors spoke about how his mental health was poor and he didn't know how to talk about it. And then he started using drugs and that helped make it feel better. So so mostly, actually, when you talk to people who have ended up in problem use, that that is the story. But the studies then uh, are, are correlational. One of the other things then you hear is about how cannabis is linked with psychosis. And sometimes it is. But actually, we would need to spend an awful lot of time to drill down into that. So, for example, if I... Uh, uh, purchased cannabis online today and I consumed it in whatever way I, I chose to consume it and I had a psychotic episode and I go to the hospital and it will go down that I had cannabis-induced psychosis. But the reason why it goes down as cannabis-induced psychosis is because they'll ask me what I took or they'll ask somebody who was with me and they'll say cannabis. But they don't actually test the substance. 
So you don't know, actually, if it is cannabis-induced psychosis. And I did work with young people. And I remember, just to give you an example of how, how complicated it can be, I had a young person who ended up in hospital uh, after a weekend out. The weekend started great, he said, because uh, he had had the best cocaine he'd ever had in his life. And then at some point over the weekend, it all went a bit awry and he got himself into a bit of bother and he ended up in hospital. And he was describing his weekend to me. And I thought to myself, that's an interesting cocaine experience. I haven't heard one like that before. And I said, and I'm not a fan of, of urine testing uh, for lots of different reasons. That's a conversation for another day, unless it benefits the person who's doing it. And I said, do you want to do a test to see was there anything else in it? He had no cocaine in his system. He had not taken any cocaine at all. He had taken ketamine. He had been sold ketamine and he thought it was cocaine. But when he, uh, you know, so that's the problem. If we, so, so we're lucky that will show up in a urine analysis. But you could do a urine analysis on somebody and they could test positive for cannabis because they smoked cannabis the day before. But they smoked something else today that looked like cannabis but wasn't cannabis. And it's not going to show up on a urine test. You'd have to actually test the substance itself. So, so you could have a referendum just on how complicated cannabis is. But you could have a referendum equally, we'll say, just on how complicated alcohol is. Oh, 100% alcohol is. And, and yeah. when you consider that it's it's really down to degree of usage, about 80% of the population drink alcohol, about 30% of the population smoke cannabis, that the harms we see are reduced with the more people that use it. Not that they are actually reduced, but how we perceive them mm-hmm. is reduced. Yeah. And that, in fact, the, the whole cannabis argument is a fallacy. It's, it's less harmful than, harmful than alcohol. And the A&Es aren't full of rowdy people uh, at the weekends who smoked a joint. Simple as. No, alcohol is, 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 a, is a really negative feature of society in terms of the harm that it does to self and harm that it does to others. And, that, and the, what we call the hidden harm the harm that it does to children at home as well. So, you know, and, and we know that, you know, that, that has been measured in terms of harm and cannabis is down there. But that is the problem with cannabis is because it's not regulated. And of course, that's the argument of people who want it regulated is how is because the, the research on it is, is, is so messy. You say, well, actually, you're saying that all of this and, and there are people who will be susceptible to cannabis induced psychosis because there will be, you know, perhaps extreme trauma. Or, or a genetic vulnerability to psychosis in the family, they may get psychosis anyway with or without the cannabis. We don't know that, right? Um, but we don't always know what they've taken. That's one of the big problems. The other thing as well is is around the whether regulation and legalization increases use in young people. The most recent study that I looked at a couple of days ago um, reviewed the data from three different countries, and what they found was actually uh, the the policies, the, the le- legislation policies were not actually increasing adolescent drugs. It's the same amount of people are still doing it anyway. And I mean, if you look at, we'll say, for example, in, in the Netherlands, where it's not, cannabis is not legal, but you can certainly buy it. There are more young people smoking cannabis in Ireland than there are in, in the Netherlands. They're just not really that bothered because it's just, you know. It's it's not novelty like it is can, here. Can, can I, Sharon, I'm conscious of time. I want to talk a little. You referenced at the beginning some of the questions, the options that were given to the to the members. Did you feel they, there was a, 
how do I put this diplomatically? Um, a framing of the options that were made available to them that 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 you you would have liked the scene put differently. I haven't. I'm not going to comment on them because I the only because I I was only briefly keeping on top of that over the weekend. I don't understand how each one led into the next in order to to make a final judgment about that. I am going to look at it. My understanding from talking to people who were there at the at the weekend was that they were happy. That sometimes they were a little bit confused, but there was an opportunity to clarify it. Um. So, Tony, I'm not going to I'm no, not no, going to no. answer that, that question because I just I haven't seen the ballots I, properly look, enough look, to I, make it. I, I, I will declare my biases here. Obviously, you know, um, this is my this is these are my biases. I wanted to see go go. You're further. a deeply cynical man, anyway. Yes, <laughs> this is this is not this is this is untrue. Um, but I just can I. What are the I, so I'm going to say I do not believe that there was a conspiracy. No, I not. I'm not assuming conspiracy. I'm saying that um, that that something to do with Steve Bannon and uh, Infowars and all. That. Anyway, look, we, we've gone off. We've gone off topic. Is there? We've had this ability already in Ireland, as you know, to you know first strike treat you as a health patient anyway for you know see that's yeah that's where we need to know how this is going to work because um that's not applied equally oh we know that (laughs) we know that yeah so 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 we know we all i suppose a lot of people will know somebody who has been stopped uh for using cannabis and and they've got a wrap on the knuckles and then you'll know other people who have been stopped and they've gone to court and uh so that's, I suppose, where the this will matter is who decides that, and and every human being has biases, right? So and systems have biases, and um, it's actually just a feature of being a human. So how are you going to design a system that controls that those biases? Um, so you and and I, I'm not a legal person, um, you know, but. Uh, your late colleague, Dr. Vicky Conway, you know, would say that justice is not applied equally. And that has always been a problem. So this is, is going to be a problem here is how do you ensure that you create a system that's equal for everybody and, and that's free from bias? I do remember. And I don't know the answer to that. Well, I, well I do. I, I do actually know the answer to that. You just create a really good system that says that every single person is treated the same and you abide by it. I do remember John Lonergan, the, the former governor of Mountjoy, um, some years back speaking, and he said that the vast majority of inmates in Mountjoy were for five distinct areas within Dublin. So, And they were the poorest areas within Dublin. So as you said, Sharon, how do you fix it? Well, you must fix society. And And that recommendation is there. The recommendation is there in relation to the relationship between um, socioeconomic deprivation and, and drug use um, and tackling inequality. So that is there. I mean, that is going to be the biggest challenge. Are we going to invest in people or not? So obviously there's going to be, you know, the new poverty task force. So how are they? Can, I don't can, know. Can I, can I put something to you? And Sharon, it's, uh, what didn't even, only occurs to me now that a few years ago, obviously we have the seven heads you can't discriminate against on grounds of, you know, gender, race, sex, um, political views, all of these things that we do when we talk about employment equality acts and stuff. There was an idea to, 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 
put class into that a few years ago. The 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 idea was knocked back. We have a Taoiseach now who famously said in the Shannon, I don't know what you mean when you say class. I don't understand what that is. Um, now, I'm going to use the phrase, he's been on a journey. Maybe he's welcome to talk about it now and, and understand it. But when you talk about those deprivation rates and those those ideas, is that the way to do it? Whereby we can actually yeah. class-proof things rather than um, talk about it in terms of they use drugs and they, you know, because it goes back to when, when we last time I spoke to you, Spice Bag had put posters up that upset everybody in Leafy Dublin 4, you know, um, which was great. But, um, you know, it's about those areas that are, are actually disadvantaged, marginalized and have been for decades. Look, I mean, my own view is, and this is based on the research, is the class should be added to that. And the British Psychological Society uh, in the UK uh put forward a position paper perhaps maybe two years ago as well saying that in the UK the class should be added to the discrimination um, piece and in you know lots of organizations have uh, equality diversity and inclusion committees and where I work I work in, in the School of Applied Psychology and we have an EDI committee and uh, our re- uh, the remit of the EDI committee is, is the grounds for discrimination as outlined in the legislation plus class so people are already starting to do it. And I know um, for my own lectures, uh, I try to, my lectures are built on uh, the sustainable development goals plus the grounds for discrimination and their impact on, on child development plus class within that. So there are some people who think that we don't have a class issue in Ireland. I can tell you that we do. Um, all I have to do is is wait for a working class voice to come on on the radio or the television and just look on on social media and see that people aren't addressing the topic that the person has raised, but the way they pronounce their words or the accent that they use. Um, I speak to people all the time who are told that the way that they speak is not good enough and it's not the words that they use it's the way that they sound mm-hmm. um, so so class absolutely should be in there Dr. Sharon Lambert thank you again for having this conversation with us um, it's always lovely to talk to you and it's been too long Tony it's been too I blame him Sharon but thank you very much for coming on and having this conversation with us Thank you. If I if I could plug one thing, we had a great conversation with two people who who have been uh, had experiences of their accents been used against them in Aoife Moore and Emmett Kieran recently, and they spoke brilliantly about it and the in the impact that it has and how it has changed their career paths and how they have to react to different situations. So yeah, absolutely, go back and listen to that as well. But again. Sharon, you're 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 a wonder. You're an absolute national treasure. So, um, and I and I don't say that lightly. You genuinely are. Thanks for listening, folks. And we'll talk to you all very very soon. Take care. Bye bye. Tony and Martin, Martin and Tony, speaking to interesting people only. It's the Echo Chamber podcast. Subscribe now on Pay.